I want to thank the uh, Dr. John Ellington for preaching last Sunday. I know it was a good sermon, and I can't wait to hear the tape of it. Uh, I also uh, want to express my appreciation to Richard White for leading in the first part of worship this morning and for his work uh, in our church this summer as a, a summer intern. Uh, last week we were, of course, up in Quincy, Massachusetts for the marriage of Frank and Abby. You know, the father in you keeps coming out no matter where you go. At the end of the service they were kneeling and they have those little... I had that prayer that I make right at the close of the service. And Abby started to cry and then Frank started to cry. And, I, you know, these gowns are deceiving. They're like a magician's thing. They have pockets in them. And so I slipped in my pocket and put the handkerchief down for Frank to uh, catch his nose right quick before <laughs> they stood up. And I thought you never get over being a father no matter where <laughs> no matter where you are. I've been doing that a long time. Uh, now then, what I'm going to read to you now is the passage of Scripture that we were going to speak on that Sunday that we had Bill Bright here. He is a great evangelist, and I couldn't help but recall that in 1972 when we went out to the uh, great uh, meeting of Explo uh, in Dallas, Texas, that there were 180,000 kids who came there largely through the inspiration of Campus Crusade for Christ. And what a tremendous organization that is in reaching students for Christ. And uh, then the work of InterVarsity. Uh, God is really moving in the minds and hearts of many students, and we have much to be thankful for, uh, for the dedication that they show. Now, what we are to read today is very important. All of God's Word is important. But what happened on the road to Damascus is the most important event in the history of Christianity from Pentecost until this present day. And so listen to these words. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and applied for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him to arrest anyone he found, men or women, who followed the new way, and to bring them to Jerusalem. While he was still on the road and nearing Damascus, suddenly a light flashed from the sky all around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Tell me, Lord, he said, who are you? The voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you have to do. Meanwhile, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was blind for three days and took no food or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. He had a vision in which he heard the voice of the Lord. Ananias, here am I, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go at once to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. You will find him at prayer. 
he has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have often heard about this man and all the harm he has done to thy people in Jerusalem. And I know that he is here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who invoke thy name. But the Lord said to him, You must go, for this man is a chosen instrument to bring my name before the nations and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I myself will show him all that he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went, and he entered the house, and he laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you so that you may recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it seemed that scales fell from their eyes, from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and thereupon he was baptized, and afterwards he took food, and his strength returned. He stayed some time with the disciples in Damascus, and soon he was proclaiming Jesus publicly in the synagogues. This, he said, is the Son of God. All who heard were astonished. Is not this the man, they said, who was in Jerusalem trying to destroy those who invoke this name? And did he not come here for the sole purpose of arresting them and taking them to the chief priest? But Saul grew more and more forceful and silenced the Jews of Damascus with his powerful proofs that Jesus was the Messiah. As the days mounted up, the Jews hatched a plot against his life, but their plans had become known to Saul, and they kept watch on the city gates day and night so that they might murder him. But his converts took him one night and led him down by the wall, luring him in a basket. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let us all bow in prayer. And now, God our Father, we return our thanks to you for all your great mercies to us, for the amount of material possessions which you have entrusted into our care, for the nation in which we live and the opportunities that are ours, for the freedoms which we enjoy to worship thee this day. We pray that you will superintend the use of the gifts which we give, and grant that they may bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, that they may heal and help many to his glory, that they may bring many into a saving knowledge of him. And we pray that each one of us may now be caught up by the Holy Spirit close to thee, so that the event which we have read about in Scripture may become meaningful to our own mind and heart, so that we might test our lives and see if we know Christ and how well we're following after him. Make us go from this chapel today more determined than ever to live 100% for Jesus Christ. We dedicate these gifts in his name. Amen.
Well, there is a chance for the sinner if we proclaim the gospel. And the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. And that good news means that uh, when we hear and act upon the authority of Scripture, that there should be a corresponding change in our life. That's what the whole word conversion means. The biblical doctrine of conversion ought to be revived and preached and taught again as never before. Uh, I placed in the bulletin something which I hope you will keep because it comes from an important book, A Long Obedience in the Right in the Same Direction. Conversion for the early New Testament Christians was not a destination. It was the beginning of a journey. And right there is where the biblical emphasis differs from ours. Today all is made to depend upon the initial act of believing. At a given moment a decision is made for Christ and after that everything is automatic. Such is the impression inadvertently created by our failure to lay a scriptural emphasis in our evangelistic preaching. We of the evangelical churches are, are almost all guilty of this lopsided view of the Christian life. In our eagerness to make converts, we allow our hearers to absorb the idea that they can deal with their entire responsibility once and for all by an act of believing. This, in some vague way, is supposed to honor grace and glorify God, whereas actually it is to make Christ the author of a grotesque and workable system that has no counterpart in the scripture of truth. In the book of Acts, faith was for each believer a beginning, not an end. It was a journey, not a bed in which to lie waiting for the day of our Lord's triumph. Believing was not a once-done act. It was more than an act. It was an attitude of heart and mind which inspired and enabled the believer to take up his cross and follow the Lamb whithersoever he went. Now we're going to see how that conversion works in the life of one today. I've just said to you in a, mo a moment ago that the conversion of the Apostle Paul is the most important event in the New Testament from the time of the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, until this day in which we live. The Apostle Paul made history wholesale. If you study an event in Scripture by the amount of space given to it, in the New Testament, there is more space given to the conversion of the Apostle Paul than to any other event in the New Testament with the exception of the crucifixion of the Son of God. That shows you how important. When you read of this remarkable conversion, and you read of how it is reiterated again in the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts when Paul speaks to a group of Jews, and then you read it again when he stands before kings and people in high authority before Agrippa and Festus, you get some idea of the importance of this remarkable event and how it transformed all of Western history and really the history of the whole wide world. Let's look at it for a moment. Remember that Saul of Tarsus, Saul was his old name, that was his Jewish name. Paulinius or Paul was his name uh, given to him when his people were of Roman citizenship. Saul was of course a very distinguished Benjamite in the Old Testament. And so his parents, Hebrews, 
who had bought Roman citizenship and were evidently people of considerable means, gave him that distinguished Hebrew name of Saul. Then they gave him the Roman name because he had Roman citizenship. And that was a distinction that is very, very great and it's significant and important for us to realize. All the missionaries who are here, and I see many and we welcome you and are so glad you're here. You know what a hassle it is to go through the obtaining of visas and uh, passports and to get from one country into another country. But here God called this unusual man with his Hebrew background and this Roman citizenship which gave him automatic entrance into all of the Roman Empire everywhere he went. He was a scholar of impeccable credentials. It, was be, it would be as though I could go to Peking and lecture in Chinese to people there about Confucius and show them how Jesus is the true light. It would be as if I could go to the Kremlin in Russia and speak to the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Russian and speak to them with authority and presence and power so that I could convince them of the truth of the creation of the Christian faith. Paul was a distinguished and learned man. His parents had sent him to study at the feet of Gamaliel. I always tell students here who are gifted and talented and able to do something, go to the very best school you can go to. Sharpen your mind as sharp as you can get it for Jesus Christ. When you take a sharp axe and lay it to the roots of something, it sinks in. And a mind is a very precious gift from God. And those students who have the ability to learn can use those treasures of learning for the glory of Jesus Christ. And when God called this man Saul of Tarsus, he called such a man. Now Saul of Tarsus had once thought himself the one who should do as much as he could to destroy the name of Jesus Christ. Of all the things that he wanted to do, it was to eradicate every believer in Jesus Christ, to compel them to blaspheme against the name of Jesus. And when Stephen, one of those seven godly men chosen to be a dispenser of gifts as a deacon in the early church, was stoned to death and made his impassioned plea as to who Jesus was before that Jewish group who stoned him to death. It was Saul of Tarsus who stood there and watched the stoning take place and they laid their garments at the feet of this Saul of Tarsus. But as far back in church history as Augustine, St. Augustine said that it must have been the prayers of St. Stephen which led to the conversion of St. Paul. Because you remember that scripture tells us that when they took up their stones to pelt the life out of Stephen, that Stephen fell to his knees as the stones pounded against him and bruised him to death. And he called out to Jesus whom he saw sitting at the right hand of God. That only infuriated the impassioned mob to stone him more furiously. And he died. And Saul of Tarsus saw him breathe his last and heard him pray a prayer like the prayer of his own dear master on the cross. 
Do not lay this sin to their charge. It must have stuck in his mind. What kind of person is this who dies praying for those who are stoning him to death? And that's the way St. Stephen died. His face was described as the face of an angel. Saul couldn't get that out of his mind. He was probably about 30 years of age, learned, determined, wanting to root out every Christian that he could get a hold of. He went to the Sanhedrin. Perhaps he was a member of the Sanhedrin himself, but he went to the Sanhedrin and, and asked for authority from the chief priest so that he could go to a place where he knew there were Christians, even in that city of Damascus. And that Damascus road has become synonymous with a powerful conversion. But don't think that that conversion simply took place in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. For much had been going on in the mind of Saul of Tarsus. He had been thinking about Jesus and the claims. He had been thinking about St. Stephen and his death. When he went to far off places and he went into the homes and arrested mothers and fathers and little children and brought them to imprisonment, he could not get them out of his mind. These were people who showed love and a quality of life that he had never seen before. And I'm sure that as he pushed on his journey with his temple police toward the city of Damascus, when the light of the noonday sun glaring and most travelers would have stopped and rested in the heat of the midday, Saul of Tarsus fanatically pushed on to get to Damascus because he was going there to destroy some more who believed in the name of Jesus. And later when he gives his own testimony before Agrippa and before Festus, he tells them about I saw light, and I read to you a moment ago of that light that came from heaven, a light brighter and more significant and more powerful than a thousand suns. Julius Oppenheimer in July 1945 out in New Mexico when he saw that tremendous flash of the first atomic explosion, described it as brighter than a thousand suns. This light here is more significant and powerful than that. This light here is the light of God. And that light of God falls upon this raving, savaging fanatic who is a good man. Remember this, he thought he was doing something good for God. He was not some dissolute reprobate, but he was a person who thought he was doing God's will by destroying Christians. He was dedicated to that purpose. And so, when he goes to get those who were following that way, and Jesus, you remember, had described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. While he was still on the road nearing Damascus, suddenly a light flashed from the sky and all around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, I saw light. Now let me ask you this, has God ever lighted your heart to the place where you saw that you need Jesus to be your Savior? 
Can you look back over the years and think of a revival meeting or a time in a Sunday school class or in a church service or sometime in a home where you were reading the Bible and God lighted your heart to show you your need of the Savior? I saw a light. We sung that beautiful hymn a while ago. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. What's the matter with the church today is that we do not have Christians who live as Christians should live. I explained to our young friends who came into this church this morning when I saw them the other day. Members are one thing, Christians are another. In the New Testament, the disciples were called Christians. And I often think it would be wonderful today if the people who are Christians would be called disciples. People who really know and are disciplined by Jesus Christ, who are convinced he is the Son of God, who are committed to his lordship in their life, and who live a conduct that reflects that he has the final word in their lives. Well, this is what happens here in the beginning of this journey for this man. Because that light, I saw a light. And then he heard that voice of Jesus. And that voice speaks to him. And this is significant. In the Old Testament, God calls out to Abraham. And when he uses that double way of speaking to him, Abraham, Abraham. Samuel, Samuel, when he calls to Samuel. And then here, Saul, Saul. And what does he say? Why do you persecute me? When you persecute a Christian, you persecute Jesus. When you cause one of his own to suffer, you cause Jesus Christ to suffer. You speak an evil word against a follower of Jesus, you're speaking a word against Jesus. One who truly belongs to him. Tell me, Lord, he said, who are you? Who are you? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus. Do you really love Jesus? Do you know him? Have you seen the light? Have you heard the voice? When Paul told his conversion before kings, he said, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Did you ever ask that question of God? Did you ever ask that question of the Lord Jesus? Did the Holy Spirit ever prompt within you to say, Lord, what will you have me to do? What would you have my children to do? Do you want one of them to be a missionary, to go to Africa? Do you want one of them to be a teacher, a preacher of the gospel? Are your plans sort of wanting to keep God at the fringes and he doesn't call the plays, but you do? If that's the case, then you're not under the lordship of Christ. You're under your own selfish dominion. And you need to listen twice as much as anyone else right now. What wilt thou have me to do? What does the Lord want me to do? And then I must obey what he wants me to do. And when Paul gave his testimony later before Agrippa, he said, I have continued to this day. You see, that's what started all of this, is that conversion is more than just what takes place in that moment. But it's a journey that we continue on 
a journey that we continue on. He was fighting against Christ and Christ spoke to him and he obeyed. I want to give a couple of examples of conversion. I wanted to speak to you a little bit about what C.S. Lewis, the great um, Oxford and Cambridge scholar. Lewis was of course an atheist. He did not believe in God. A brilliant man, probably a little older than Saul of Tarsus when he was converted. I think Lewis must have been about 38 or 39. And this is how he described his own conversion. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen. That's Magdalen College at Oxford. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. I admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing to me, the divine humility which will accept a convert on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet. But who, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates of heaven to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and screaming and struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? The words compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depths of divine mercy. For the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberty. When we yield to him, what a difference it makes. You see, Paul fought intensely against Christ, and that voice that spoke to him said, It is hard for thee to kick against the goads. And that needs a little bit of explanation. For a goad was uh, like a, a sharp pointed piece of metal on the end of a stick. We would use it like a spur to spur a horse on or to punch an oxen to make it move forward. That was one way it was used. And another way, goads were placed is sharp points so that if the animal kicked back it would hit against that sharp point and only hurt itself. And so the voice of Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He says, Who art thou, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against these barbs. But then then when he hears what has happened, he is willing, he is willing to obey. He is told what he has to do. 
Saul got up from the ground, and when he had opened his eyes, he could not see, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was blind for three days and took no food or drink. And then this blessed man, Ananias. And I am so thankful that in the congregations I've been privileged to serve, that God has always seemed to have some Ananias there, some gentle, sweet soul who is willing to believe the best about the worst of people. Here is Ananias, and he has a vision. A vision is not a dream. A vision comes to you when you're awake, and he has a vision, and he heard the voice of the Lord, Ananias. And he said, Here am I, Lord, and he answered. And the Lord said to him, Go at once to the street, call straight. A few weeks ago we had that marvelous little man from Lebanon here who was born in the street called Straight in Damascus. Well, Paul is told that he is to go to that street and he would reside at the house of a man named Judas there, not the Judas Iscariot. And Ananias is told that he is to go to Judas's house to see this man from Tarsus named Saul. And look what Ananias says. How would you feel if the Lord said to you in a vision, I want you to go to the Kremlin and see Cherenko and talk to him about faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you think of the person who most opposes Christian faith and what you stand for in the Lord, and the Lord said to you, I want you to go and speak to that person about Jesus. Well, here is a man who knew that Christians had been put to death because of Saul of Tarsus, who knew all about Stephen's death and all about those who had been compelled to blaspheme, and yet the Lord tells him that he must go to him. And he says, you will find him at prayer. He has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard about him. All the harm that he has done to thy people in Jerusalem. And Ananias said, I know why he's here. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest, to arrest all who invoke your name. And the Lord said, you must. You must go, for this man is a chosen vessel. Isn't it remarkable? God chose Jeremiah in the Old Testament. God said, I saw you when you were in your mother's womb. I chose you. I chose you. And God had chosen Saul of Tarsus, this great enemy of the faith who will be a chosen vessel to bear my name before nations and their kings. It's a great privilege to bear a testimony in the White House. To go and speak a word to the President of the United States, that's fine. Take some courage, but it's a great experience. You're thrilled when you walk in the Oval Office, or when you kneel in prayer in his bedroom, or when you talk to him at the breakfast table. I can tell you, I know, because I've done it. That's thrilling. It's thrilling when you go, but it says here before the people of Israel, have you ever witnessed to a Jew about faith in Jesus? 
after the miserable way they've been treated by so many Christians. I love Jews and I try to bear a testimony to them about faith in Jesus as the Messiah because they cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And because I love them, I want to witness to them about faith in Jesus Christ. You can only be a true lover of God and of Christ when you're willing to obey Him. Not do your will, but His will. And that means sacrificing what you think in order to be popular and to do what God's Word tells you to do. And so that's bear a testimony before Israel and the Gentiles. But then he says, I will show him what things he must suffer for my sake. What things he must suffer for my sake. It breaks down right there for a great many of us. We don't want to really suffer for Christ. Much of what you see peddled for Christianity and television and books tells you that if you become a Christian, you'll become a very successful person or a great athlete or a very beautiful movie star or some other thing. That may or may not be the case. You may or may not have that to deal with. But we're told here that Paul said that he would be shown what things he must suffer for Christ's sake. And he does suffer for Christ's sake. But how that suffering is brought blessing to the world. I want to show you some of the parallel in closing. I remember we were up in New England and I remember that great story about the great stone face and the little boy who would go out and look at that stone face on the mountain and how his own countenance changed as he grew older. If you really look at Jesus and you stay close to him, there can become a oneness about you and the Lord Jesus that will show the change. And if it hasn't happened, maybe you haven't seen the light. Maybe you haven't heard the voice. Maybe you have not obeyed. Certainly you're not continuing until this day. If there was a time when you loved the Bible but you don't love it now. If there was a time when you were willing to speak to a person about faith in Jesus but that's not now. If there was a time when you were willing to give extra because you wanted the work of Christ to go forward but it's not now. You have not continued unto this day. But listen to the progress in Paul's life. This is nothing but scripture arranged to show you how this man copies his master. Like the great stone face that the little boy looked at, he looks at Jesus and he becomes like Jesus. Jesus said these words, I am come in my Father's name. Paul said these words, For me to live is Christ. Jesus said, I live by the Father. Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to minister. Paul said, I have come to be the servant of all. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Paul said, I could wish that myself were a curse for my brethren's sake. Jesus said, the zeal of mine, thine house hath consumed me. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all. And then like-mindedness. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. 
And Paul said, what do you mean to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready, ready not only to be bound, but also to go to Jerusalem and die. Jesus said to those who watched him, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. Paul said, Christ is preached, and I therein rejoice. In Philippians, Paul said, being, who being in the form of God, describing Jesus, made himself of no reputation. And then how does Paul copy that? What things were gained to me, Richard read to you a moment ago from Philippians 3, those I counted loss for Christ. All that brilliant education at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the seven greatest of all rabbis. All of his wealth and prestige, all of that I counted loss for faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said the Son of God must suffer many things. And Paul said of himself, bonds and afflictions abide me. Oneness of life inevitably meant a oneness of what would happen. And with due faithfulness to the fellowship of his sufferings of which we're speaking now, watch the parallels still in just the language of Scripture. Jesus said it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I know many people who bear in their body, body the marks of the devil, the tracks of the addict, the effects of acute alcoholism, the idiocy and the debauchery that exists in the confusion about sex today with men dressed like girls, girls dressed like men, the confusion and the sickness that exists. They took up stones to cast at Jesus, having stoned Paul. The band took Jesus and bound him. They took Paul and bound him with thongs. Pilate took Jesus and had him beaten. Five times received I forty stripes, save one, says Paul. One of the officers struck Jesus in the face. The high priest commanded that Paul be struck in the face. They said of Jesus, he is beside himself. They said of Paul, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning hath made thee mad. Has anyone ever accused you of being crazy for Christ? They said about Jesus, we found this fellow perverting the nation. He stirreth up the people. They said about Paul, we found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition. In the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, it is said of Jesus, he was despised and rejected of men. Of the Apostle Paul, we are made as the filth of the world and as the offscurring of all things. In the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples forsook him of Jesus. Paul, when he is in jail in Rome, says, All men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. They said of Jesus, Away with him! Crucify him! And they said about Paul, Away with him! It is not fit that he should live. Absolute oneness is shown in the closing of their lives. Jesus said, in that wonderful prayer in John 17, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. 
And the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now where are you? Is this type of Christianity just for a few mystics down through the ages? Are there exceptional clauses that are permitted so that we don't have to give as much of ourselves as we know how to give to as much of Jesus as we understand? This is what the book says. I've read it to you. Have you saw the light? Have you heard the voice? Have you obeyed? Have you continued until this day? May God grant that if you have not, now may be a time of rededication. And may God grant that if you have, it will be a time of rededication to him too. Let us bow in prayer. And now, God our Father, we bless you for the glimpse we have had into what you have done in the life of the blessed Apostle Paul. And we thank thee that your grace is not limited to Paul, but Paul would have us to know that that grace is extended to each and every one of us here. That no one of us has committed any sin that you are not willing now to forgive. And that we need not look back with failure and think that we have to remain there. And we thank you, our Father, that we may look forward to the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you will enable us so to do. We ask you to inspire within our hearts a deeper devotion and dedication to you so that all that we have and are may be completely under your Lordship. We pray that the gospel will go as we have sung to all this world and that you will keep us faithful until we are called into your presence. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.